Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of JA's Recipe for Success. I'm Lori Salarulo. I'm your host for the show uh, and the proud CEO and president of Junior Achievement of South Florida. You know, um, I absolutely love doing this show. I get to interview, have conversations. I hate to use the word interview, have conversations with some of our top leaders in our community, as well as some that uh, are not located in our community. And I always learn from these individuals. Um, some of their ingredients to their recipes for success are just amazing. And if you watched last week's show, just a quick hint, you definitely want to go check out Chief Kier's show as she was on. She's the chief of the Fort Lauderdale uh, Fire uh, team. And she gave her three main ingredients to success. And I would have never guessed them. I thought they were going to be persistence or tenacity. But you have to go check those out if you have not seen the show. Anyway, today's guest um, had me at hello. I am a sucker for an accent. And he just has the most charming James Bond accent that I've ever heard. Um, always dapper looking, always looking for solutions. I've had the honor and the pleasure to work with him within the community, especially when the chips are down, right? When we go are going through tough times, Joe is always at the table. So please help me welcome my friend and my colleague, Joe Cox. Good morning. Good morning, Lori. Thank you. You see what I mean about the accent, everybody? It's, you know, it's gotcha. Well, and the other thing I didn't mention is I must say, you always look so dapper, Joe. Look at you in your tie and your, you just always look so amazing. So kudos to you for all of that. That is your, that's your brand, right? We talk about Thank brands uh, and all of that and our personal brands. Well, yours is pretty cool, I got to say. Well, so, I feel so, like sometimes the tie is the only thing keeping my head connected <laughs> to the rest of my body. So I want to make sure, you know, as president and CEO of the Museum of Discovery and Science, which is an amazing place in our community, um, not only from a science, right, from a STEM perspective, but also from an economic perspective, um, I would say probably in some degree, a little bit of arts and culture mixed in there, right? I kind of call it STEAM rather than STEM, although I know we have our museums that focus on our art museums that focus on that. But I think I always get a feeling of arts and culture in there um, as well. Um, and just a great overall facility. I want everybody to know that you didn't just pop out of one of those swamps in there, right? <laughs> Where, tell us a little bit about your journey, a couple of the highlights that brought you to our community, because uh, I think we're so fortunate to have you. Sure, thank you. You know, it's I've been incredibly fortunate in my career, and in many ways, coming to MODS is a return home in a really strange way. So when I first moved to the U.S., Gosh, 25 years. It'll be 25 years in September. Um, and I know how long ago it was, and this will totally age me. The day I moved to the U.S. was the day that Spice Girls' song, Wannabe, hit number one in the chart. <laughs> Random thing. They're not even together, right? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so I moved to the U.S. to take up an internship at a nature center in Naples, Florida. And so decided to come to the States, had never been to the States before, and wanted to basically put off work for as long as possible. 
and found a wonderful internship at a nature center. And little did I know that that would really lead to a career in museums. Four years after I was hired as an intern, I was actually director of the nature center. And then that was my first uh, leadership role in a museum. And so after that went on to be the founding director of the Children's Museum of Naples. And so had a spectacular time uh, raising $26 million to build what is now the Golisano Children's Museum in Naples. Did that for a bit, loved it, and then was recruited away and uh, moved to Worcester, Massachusetts to run an almost 200-year-old uh, science museum up there. Did that for six years and had done some, you know, really fun things up there, another capital campaign, built a mountain lion exhibit, and then went through so much snow and so much cold weather uh, when the mods board reached out uh, to invite me to come down and interview for this position. I said, absolutely, perfect timing. Yes, my snow boots need replacing, so might as well move out, right? I do know Worcester um, actually had some family who had a home there, uh, so was there a few times, but yeah, it's pretty cold during the winter. So something you said caught me, and I really want to touch on that, especially because I love to be able to pull out the ingredients, right? You talked about your internship and that you were selected to become a director, and that was the beginning of your leadership journey. What was it, Joe, that made you stand out, even at that young age, right? What was it that, why were you chosen to be director? What, what made you stand out? You know, I think one of the things that I've always loved doing, uh, no matter what role I'm in, no matter what position I'm in, is really listening to the community I'm in and working on building partnerships. And I had an incredible mentor, uh, Hollis Gillespie, at the Nature Center. And she really connected with that. And I think she saw something um, that would bring an asset to the Nature Center that was in a very much in a growth period. And so they were a small nature center doing really wonderful things. They've since gone on to just be bigger and better and have a kind of broader impact in the community. But I think it was that connection. It was that connection that Hollis and I had that really she was like, okay, there's something that she saw and I'm forever grateful that she did because she mentored me. She sent me off to the Smithsonian to do an internship up there for a while. She really just, she helped me get my green card, which was just a huge piece. Uh, but no, she really, I think, saw that I like to listen. Mm. And, you know, at that point in your career, at any point in your career, really, listening is just, you know, really a great way of gauging the world around you and identifying how you can best serve the community. Yeah, I love it. So, of course, of course, and, and I love the whole mentor thing, uh, and I agree, it's, it's interesting. I had someone early in my career who would throw me into projects, and she'd say to me all the time, well, if, if you don't fix this, we're gonna both going to lose our job. And I'm like, 
I don't know anything about this. And she's like, well, figure it out or we're going to lose our jobs. And she saw that part of me that I didn't see. Um, And so I have a lot um, that I owe her, right, as you said, for for grooming me and helping me to to become a leader. Um, It's interesting. So you said you went off to do this internship in Naples. Um, Did you always know you wanted to be in science? Like what, where, when did that start? Where did that spark come from? Cause you know, you know, we serve tens of thousands of kids a year, right? Like you. And for us, it's all about work and helping them find their passion and their career path and, and giving them the skills, right? And the knowledge that they need. One of the things that I think is hardest is to help them find their passion, right? Yeah. So tell us how you found yours. So from a very, very early age, I was always, I was always the young boy running around in the garden, finding bugs and snakes and wanting to know what plant this was and that plant and finding a snake and bring it into the house and be like, look, mom, I found a snake. And my parents were just very supportive of that. They took me to museums. They took me on hikes. They took me everywhere out and about. And I read voraciously. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite books growing up were was All Creatures Great and Small uh, by James Herriot, um, Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, um, which is just a spectacular series of books and now a PBS TV show. And I just love that idea of growing up to be a veterinarian or a zookeeper and my dad was very, very wise, and I was all kind of set to go get my veterinarian degree. And he's like, you know what? You need to volunteer in a vet clinic first. And I'm like, oh, no, I know exactly what it is. I read the books. You go to little old ladies' houses and pet their dogs and have cups of tea and cure the dog. And he's like, you need to go volunteer. So I did, and I absolutely hated it, Laurie. It was dogs with stitches and dogs that you had to, you know, console people when their dog passed away and horses and cows. And it was wildly different to what I expected. And so I switched and I said, nope, I'm going to do environmental science and did environmental science. And that really led me to my internship in the States. Wow. That is that, you know, I, I think you're right understanding and learning what we don't like sometimes leads us right to what we do like and yeah. what, what we love. Um, and I love that story. That is, that is great. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the museum. Um, so you're coming into a new town, new community, uh, unknown to all of us, of course. Right. Uh, but I know you won them over with that accent as soon as you walked in, but, but I'm sure there was more to that. Um, and you know, you inherited someone else's team who had been there for a very long time. I walked into a very similar situation only. Unfortunately uh, for us, Melissa had passed um, and Kim uh, was still very much alive, which is a good thing. Talk about that a little bit, right? Walking into a place where someone's been there for many, many years, um, uh, well-respected in the community by the board. Uh, Talk a little bit about that transition and how you went about that. I think that's so important. You know, I think Kim 
did such a spectacular job laying the groundwork for what we are able to do today in so many ways, in so many ways. You know, she was incredibly thoughtful in forward planning, in building the institution to the point that, you know, we had a rainy day fund. And as we saw, it rained every day last year. Yeah. Uh, in building the board to be, you know, such the incredible um, board that it is today, recognizing kind of their role, recognizing the role of the CEO, and, you know, just always being there to be supportive. You know, Kim built some incredible programs that are just still going and go from strength to strength. Programs like our TIL program, our Transition to Independent Living program, where every year we hire 15 children who are graduating out of foster care into independent living and give them, in some cases, their first job. That's one of the programs that she started, keeps growing. We've now got students who graduated out of that program who are managers at the museum awesome. and mentoring future TIL students themselves. So I think Kim just did a spectacular job really positioning the museum in the community to have life long beyond her. And I think that's really what you want to do as a CEO is, and as a museum director, you're a caretaker for future generations of museum directors. You want to make sure the museum's in great position to one day hand it off to the person who comes after you so it can keep going. Yeah, so true. Um, listen, nobody knows that better than the work that we do, right? We right. have to get these young people ready. Uh, they are, they're going to be the future of all of our businesses and our community and our local economy, right? So, yeah. um, so, so important. Let's talk a, a little bit about that. And I love that you're doing that with that program. Um, and we work very closely with Flight uh, and Handy and some of those organizations as well. Um, Again, and, and let's talk about that for a moment, kind of takes me down that road. You and I have been on many, many a phone call uh, with, you know, different partners at the table, um, all of us working together. Share a little bit about, um, you know, how important those partnerships are uh, to the museum, to the community, um, and, you know, just kind of how you go about it a little bit. I think it's so important that we understand how and when and why it's so important to collaborate. No, I've always believed that partnerships are critical. No institution, particularly when you're working with a nonprofit budget. And, you know, I said to someone just the other day, they're like, oh, well, the museum is so big. I'm like, well, it's all just scale. It's all just scale. If you're running a $100,000 a year nonprofit, a $10 million a year nonprofit or a $100 million a year nonprofit, you're still working with challenges. You're still trying to you know, make ends meet. It's just a matter of scale. And so I think the past year, more than anything else, really showed the importance of strong partnerships. And at the museum, you know, we are committed to diversity, equity, access, and inclusion in a big way. It's been a big part of what we've done for years. We recently celebrated our 10th annual 
uh, Asian Pacific um, celebration. We've been doing some of these programs for a long, long time, but we can't have the impact that we would like to have without our partners. And I look to programs like our Kids Club, our Leo Goodwin Kids Club, where every year we provide free access to the museum, to any groups from, I think it's 28 different social service agencies, YMCA, Boys and Girls Club, Crockett Foundation, Jack and Jill. They can literally come to the museum at any time for no cost. And I think that's just so important because as a museum, we have all of these wonderful resources, educational programs, our IMAX, our exhibits, that we put a lot of time and effort into creating, and we want to make sure that they're available to partners in the community. But then, as you know uh, better than most, Laurie, partners include our corporate partners as well. And so when we look at how incredibly fortunate we were to be able to get through the pandemic. So much of that uh, was based on the strength of our relationship to our corporate partners and finding ways to reimagine things like galas and our wine event, which is coming back. Um, <laughs> but having to come up with new ways to deliver content, new ways to um, keep those partnerships going and it's, it's a testament to this community that they stepped up in ways that they never imagined they might have to step up. Yeah, so true. Um, and yeah, we we absolutely did a lot of uh, adapting. I hate using the word, that P word. I'm yes. always, I, I never want to hear that word ever again. Um, uh, adapting and as you said, reimagining and innovating and all those things. And in some ways, um, you know, we found ways, I think, you know, both of us very similar. We're so fortunate to have these amazing facilities, which are assets to our community. Um, but finding ways to continue to, to deliver our mission, but at the same time to serve the community as we, we, we did through the remote learning centers. But you talked about access, and I think that's such an important thing today. You know, we, we think, oh, well, the museum is there for everyone. Why, you know, why is this such a big deal? But not everyone has access, right? What does access mean? Not everyone has the, the funding or the, the resources to go. Not everyone knows about the museum, right? So we need to make sure that we are reaching into those communities within our community, right, to make sure that we provide access. But you also, you mentioned um, something that I know every nonprofit leader that I've ever had, especially on the show, talks about the challenges of running a nonprofit. Right. Um, and listen, the list, you know, I always say it's probably not much different than running a for profit. The difference yeah. may, I'd love, but I'm not going to say what I think the difference is because I want to hear from you. We are running businesses. And I think that if there's anything anyone can understand, should understand, is we are corporations, businesses. We don't have a hard product or right, service that you take away. Um, that's tangible, but we do have right emissions that are absolutely vital to the future of our young children and our community. Um, so, so we have our, our product in a sense. How do we send that message, Joe? Right? How do we how do we continue as a group, as a nonprofit? Because that's our status. Right. How do we continue 
to let the community know, especially the corporate funders, um, how do we let and individuals, how do we let them know that there, there may not be a tangible walk away, right? That they walk away with, but what is it? Why should they invest in nonprofit organizations? You know, I think you hit on it perfectly, Laura. You said um, nonprofit is you know, a tax status. Nonprofit is a tax status. It's not a business model. Um, you're not. Your goal is not to not make a profit. <laughs> and it, it's the first time I heard that that nonprofit is a tax status, not a business model. Was when I was in high school doing my junior achievement young enterprise program. <laughs> so 1991, and so I was at De La Salle College on the island of Malta, and um, we met in the Farsons, which is the brew the brewery uh, on the island of Malta. There we were, a bunch of high schoolers meeting in the brewery boardroom for our young enterprise. And um, we actually created a whole line of products uh, around the brand Happy. It was a little cartoon P that was on a Christmas card and a birthday card and a Easter card. And it said, happy birthday, happy Christmas. And we sold so many of these. <laughs> one of our advisors told me that. It's like when we were going through all of the different business structures. And while we are certainly a business. We certainly have an economic impact. And I look at studies like the uh, Arts and Economic uh, Impact Study that was done by Americans for the Arts a few years ago. And you look at the trickle-on effects of Mars. You know, 20% of our visitors are tourists. They come to town, they come downtown, they go to lunch. They're visiting. More and more of our uh, visitors are coming from Palm Beach, Miami. So the economic impact that we have between our employees, between the services that we provide, you know, between the IMAX productions that we put on, all of those things support our local economy in the case of mods to the tune of about $40 million a year. So we absolutely have an impact. And when you look at kind of how we're then paying forward the investment by our corporate partners, we're really scaffolding what's happening in the school system. We're scaffolding social service agencies uh, in so many ways. And, you know, it's something that we'll continue to do. And it's something that um, I think this community recognizes. And we can't do everything alone. And it doesn't matter if you're the school district, if you're a social service agency, you're always looking for different ways to support that overall learning that a child is having. And that's where Junior Achievement, MODS, and our other cultural and social partners step in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, I love that you're telling the story um, with the data, right? Showing people not just, you know, saying, yes, we're an economic driver, right? This, but what's the data behind that? And I think that's so important. Um, you talked about the challenges of running a nonprofit. Um, and I go back to for-profit, not-for-profit status, but you're, the challenges of running a business. Yeah. Are they unique, do you think? 
um, to, to the nonprofit status? Or do you think that they're very much the same as a for-profit business? You know, I think some of the areas where nonprofits benefit in a huge way, and I was having this conversation with some of our uh, leadership team the other day, that people generally tend to work at a nonprofit because they love the mission. And those are the employees that you really hope that you have most of, right? You want people who are there because they love what they do. Uh, we do a weekly training for uh, new employees. And because as we're rehiring now, we're bringing back so many uh, new people and also some staff who haven't seen the museum in full operation. You know, thankfully, we're back up to about 80% of our 2019 attendance. We have 1,200 children coming on a field trip tomorrow, which is spectacular. But so we've been doing a lot more regular training. And you know, I always tell new staff, what you do each and every day, and you see this light switch go on, what you do each and every day, you're not working at an exhibit. You're not working a tabletop activity. These people who come into the museum, this might be their only time they ever come. They might be a tourist. They might be coming for the first and only time they ever come on a field trip. You've got two to three hours to create an experience which is going to become a memory for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Like, wow, okay, I'm not just working this ride or staffing this exhibit today. That's your role. You know, our mission is connecting people to inspiring science, but it takes people to make that connection. So true. So true. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that is, you probably uh, sounds like very similar. One of our assets, one of our strengths is our team and their passion around our mission. Um, and always wanting to make sure that every student, every teacher, every parent, every volunteer, mentor, all of those things, right, have the best experience because we know, right, both of us know yeah. that when I meet adults like you, right, who just told me about something that happened, I won't say how many years ago, <laughs> but, you know, and I hear that all the time. I had young, I had two young college kids in just recently who said, Lori, can we go see BizTown? They had just entered college. They were coming in to work with us on something. And they went into BizTown. They told me about their jobs, how they influenced the, the pathways that they picked for their futures. That's creating experiences and memories, yeah. right? Very different than, than the memories that they'll create in their classroom. And that's why these experiences, these assets in our community, educational, besides the economic, right? For yep. us, it's creating a workforce. For you, it's it's the tourism economic piece, right? So we're all driving the economy. But more so than that, what we are doing is, is creating, as you said, those experiences and memories for our students and to help them and inspire them and help them grow. And I can't think of a better thing to do every day. I mean, you know, yeah. wake up every day like it's my first day, no matter what those challenges are that we're facing. Um, you mentioned the leadership team. So I know when I came in, right, I, I inherited a team uh, that was there. 
Um, and it's taken, literally, I, I'm not embarrassed to say, it has taken a solid five of the six years to develop the culture that I, I wanted to create, right? That, that, that I thought was going to drive the organization, right? To be a high performing organization. Talk a little bit about that, about culture and the importance of building that culture and creating your team and making sure that that team is the right team to take your organization to high levels. You know, it, it's, I had the opportunity, um, gosh, 10 years ago, there's a wonderful leadership program um, called the Getty Leadership Institute. And every year, 30 museum directors from around the world are invited to participate. And it's basically a intensive four week living at the Getty in LA, MBA for museum directors. And it's live, breathe, work, you know, museum leadership. And we did, did a 360. We did a 360 and you had to kind of have this whole array of people who work for you, with you, besides you, above you, the whole thing. And it was the first time I'd ever done one. And after the whole process, we all got together and were sharing everything that everyone had said. And consistently around the room, the people who had had most success in building a culture that, as you say, high performing, moved the institution forward, it's never made up of people who are just like yourself. And really looking for diversity in thought in, you know, you don't want to surround yourself with people who are like, oh, Laurie, that's a great idea. Everything you say is wonderful. You really want people who are going to be challenging you. You want people who are thinking differently, who have a different approach to a situation. And that debate, I think, at the leadership level, that collaboration, but then always being able to have a level of respect where once you as a team or if you as the ED have to make that decision, come to that decision, everyone's on board and you agree that that's the decision and move on. And I think we've been able to really build that at MODS. We've got a great leadership team, you know, throughout the pandemic. I mean, we called it the welcome back committee because the leadership team was just dedicated to welcoming everyone back. And I think, you know, even with the incredible pain that we had to go through, decreasing our staff, laying people off, furloughing people, as we're building back up, that kind of passion to connecting people to inspiring science, sticking by our values, which you know include having fun, are really, really important. And so trying to get everyone on board with these are our values. This is what we believe in. And I think people do now recognize we work in a science museum. It should be fun. Like <laughs> one of my favorite things is when I'll get a knock on my door and one of my staff is standing out there with a hovercraft that they made and be like, Joe, we just built this hovercraft. You should come and try it. Knowing that A, I will, and B, I'll have a blast doing it. It's like, we have times of the week 
uh, where we just have staff try and play with new stuff, where we're testing out new exhibits and seeing who can make the biggest explosion out of liquid nitrogen. So it's that's the kind of that's the kind of culture I think that we're building at yeah. the museum. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. You know, financial literacy, not quite as much fun as blowing up things, but um, but we do have a lot of fun. Um, and there are some, some, I think you're right. It's, again, you're creating an experience, right, and memories for your team as well. Um, so it goes back to that. I want to read some of your ingredients to success. Um and it's, it's fun to hear them read back because I hear whenever we're in the um, actual facility, uh, we'll write them on a big whiteboard and people are like, wow, when you see them all on the same page, right? it's pretty cool. Um, and then I'm going to ask you what your main ingredient to success is. So some of your ingredients that I mentioned that you mentioned through our conversation, listening, very, very important. But you talked specifically a couple of times about listening to the community around you that you serve, building partnerships, right? And valuing partnerships, mentoring, finding that person who believes in you, right? And allowing them to help mold you and shape you. You talked about that mentor. Reading, right? An avid reader you talked about, right? And that goes with one of the other ones that I wrote down about learning, Right when we're reading, we're learning constantly, um, and figure out what you don't like so you can figure out <laughs> what you do like. And I love that um, building a foundation. You talked about that as an organization, but I think it also applies to to us as leaders. Right, building that foundation that we of our values that we build upon. Uh, clear roles and expectations. You talked a little about that. Teaching, supporting, and being a mentor for our future generations. Um, again, you talked about partnerships, but the strength of partnerships and collaboration. Um, diversity, providing access to all. Uh, Reimagining and adapting as leaders. Telling the story, telling it specifically sometimes with data. It's all about, as you said, um, creating that memory and experience, uh, and especially today in our society, it's all about that, right? Then, then, then nobody wants a lot of words. They just want to experience something amazing. Yeah. Um, social media and all those things, right? That's what we're seeing. Uh, bringing different skill sets around you, you talked about, right? Building your leadership team and having all those diverse skill sets and diverse perspectives around you. Um, you talked about being challenged, being open to being challenged, right, through your, your leadership group, respect um, and staying true to those values, and most important, having fun. Uh, all great ingredients to success. Um, and I know if we kept talking, there'd be a million more um, because you have been such a, a beacon, I think, in our community and such a, an amazing role model um, and champion, right, for uh, our children, especially our young people. So thank you for that. So you don't get off though yet until we ask you, Joe Cox, what is your main ingredient to success? You know, I hate to go with the first thing you said, Lori, but listening. And I think as, as leaders of our institutions, we're not running institutions that are set in stone. And I think last year really showed that to us. And I think coming out of the pandemic, we're going to be faced with new changes. We live in a community which is still changing, still evolving, 
And no matter which community I've lived in, there have been different challenges. And I think unless, until you really understand your community, and I'm still fairly new, I've only been at Mods three and a half years, I'm still fairly new to the community, but you know, I said to someone once, they're like, you, you know, you just go to everything. And I'm like, well, when you first get to a new community, if someone's opening a can of baked beans, you may as well show up to the opening. Right. And you've, you've got to really try and understand. And so I think to do that, you really have to listen. Mm -hmm. It's really serving on committees, being in those uh, communities where you can listen for an opportunity. You can see where you might be able to step in and play a role. And that's going to change over time. And I think listening to your staff, listening to your audience, and then just really being open. Once you hear something, you've got to be able to act on it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. I love that one. Uh, you and I have had many listening sessions. You've listened to me um, uh, as as we go through some of these challenges over the last you know year and a half together, um, which has been a pleasure. So. I want to say thank you so much for your leadership, for your passion, um, and for you know being, as I said, just an amazing role model uh, in our community for young people, for all of us, for for myself as well. I learn every time I'm with you, and I appreciate that. Um, so thank you for all that you do. Oh, well, thank you. You know, it's great to be a member of this community and have friends and colleagues uh, who are working towards the same goal. Uh, yeah. As I said, we're all part of that tapestry. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And to everyone as you're watching, thank you so much for joining us on Recipe for Success. I hope that you, I know I took a lot of notes. I hope that you have learned and been inspired by our guest today, uh, Joe Cox, the president and CEO of the Museum of Discovery and Science. Thanks everyone and have an amazing day and let's get cooking. Bye, Joe. Bye. Thank you, Lori.